Hey everyone, welcome back to the What is Money show. I am sitting down again today with the man himself, Balaji. Balaji, welcome back. Great to be here, Robert. Good to see you again. Good to see you as well. Thank you for um, getting up early and doing this. <laughs> um, so we covered a whole gamut of geopolitics in our previous discussions. And what I thought would be useful today is to just unpack this piece you wrote in 2017 titled Quantifying Decentralization. Because this is, you know, this is the very often used term in the world of Bitcoin and crypto assets, but I think it's an extremely dense term that not many people understand or really think through. And your piece, uh, you know, you've done you've made a great effort to actually unpack it and go through it. So I think it's important for people um, to give it more thought than, and then, then just think in these binaries of centralization, decentralization, clearly there's, there's many gradients between the two. So, um, you know, you've basically proposed this minimum Nakamoto coefficient yep. for what you call is basically a simple quantitative measure of a system's decentralization which was motivated by the better known Gini coefficient or the Lorenz curve. So, and just for the audience's uh, sake here, the Gini coefficient is a measure of statistical dispersion intended to represent the income inequality or the wealth inequality within a nation or group. The Lorenz curve is sort of similar used in economics. It's a graphical representation of the distribution of income or wealth, or of wealth. So maybe you could just start there, describing you know what is the Nakamoto coefficient and how is it derived from these um, these other models. Totally. So um, the the fundamental concept here is this is a way to quantify an intuition, which mm -hmm. is the minimum Nakamoto coefficient is the number of entities you need to capture to compromise a system. Mm -hmm. um, that's the minimum number of entities you need to do so. And the concept here is, uh, or the motivation, as you know, people throw around decentralization a lot on, on Twitter and other things. And, and they will say things like, X is more decentralized than Y, you know, or that's not decentralized and so on and so forth. And um, so, you know, certainly one mental model is it's a, it's a Boolean, right? It, something was not decentralized and then it suddenly is. But uh, you know, I, I don't. I don't actually feel that that is uh, a good um, metric or way of thinking about it. And the reason is, then you would not ever be able to say that mining in more countries makes Bitcoin more decentralized. Uh, you couldn't say that things like the relay network, for example, which um, help. Uh, you know, I don't know if you know what that is, but it's basically, like like the the Bitcoin relay network that Matt Corallo and others set up. Um, that that helps Bitcoin become more decentralized. I'm not sure if it's actually still called the relay network, um, but basically, uh, you, you couldn't say that like you know satellite internet makes uh, yeah Bitcoin relay network the the block relay system right, mm -hmm. um, and it moves blocks around the globe and makes it harder to choke point it via firewalls or or things like that. Okay, mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know the. The thing is that um, just as motivation, the reason you have to quantify something is 
for, once you quantify it, you can say, hey, is this action taking it up or down, right? Is it increasing it or decreasing it? And then second, what is the optimal set of actions to take to take it maximally up or maximally down? For example, um, it is not simply that one is above the ground or not. Altitude does matter. And you wouldn't be able to design a plane if you said, you know, hey, it's a, you know, there's, there's a lift is a zero one variable, right? Or altitude is a zero one variable. It's not, right? It's a continuous variable. And so you wouldn't be able to streamline an airplane or optimize, um, you know, altitude or optimize aerodynamics or optimize lift in the absence of an actual quantitative metric. Okay. And this is true for any other engineering process. When we talk about, um, CPU performance, when we talk about, uh, you know, RAM, when you talk about this, like, these are all things, everything else in computation, it's extremely amenable to benchmarking, right? Like there's quantification of all of this stuff. And that's how an engineer thinks. And then once you've got a metric, once you've got a quantitative metric, we can bring the entire field of optimization theory to bear, you know, uh, you know, optimization theory, generally convex optimization, specifically when you have a convex uh, objective function over a convex set. Uh, there's all of this math that you can bring to bear once you have a, a, an objective function. When you say an objective function, by the way, that's a mathematical term in the sense of a goal, objective in the sense of a goal, not objective in the sense of uh, impartial or dispassionate. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, and, and the thing is that this is, um, I mean, this is how all machine learning is done. This is how all devices are designed. This is how you bring this enormous body of engineering theory to work here, uh, which is, you know, better, faster, stronger, it's optimization theory. Okay. But before you can optimize decentralization, you need to be able to at least say whether something is moving up or down. And that means a quantification, right? Okay. So that's motivation, which comes from a place of wanting to make maximally decentralized systems and to quantify our intuitions, because if we're just, you know, we just have this intuition about it, it doesn't matter, right? So what is right. that intuition? So here's here's the approach that I took. And actually, this has been pretty influential, I, I, I believe, on the space. Uh, you know, for example, um, you know, if you're familiar with, you know, Solana, it's like the number three chain yep. now by some that, metrics. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So if you go to A-E-Y-A-K-O-V-E-N-K-O, -E -E uh, which is Anatoly Yakovenko's Twitter, you do from colon A-E-Y-A. K-O-V-E-N-K-O -E -E space Nakamoto on Twitter, um, you'll see that Anatoly has talked about how the Nakamoto coefficient was very influential on Solana, on Solana's design. Okay. Now you may, you may or may not like, you know, Solana's design or what have you. It's, you know, point is that at least um, this concept of trying to think about things quantitatively, it has been influencing a lot of blockchain designers and 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 so on in, in you know, the, uh, the Web3 space broadly. Okay. So, um, or it's now down, down to brass tacks. How, how does one actually go about it? So the, you know, fundamentally what I'm just trying to do is, is quantify intuition, right? How people are talking about these systems. And, you know, there's various tweets where people would say, oh, that isn't decentralized. It's only traded on one exchange or that isn't decentralized. There's only one client implementation. Um, that isn't decentralized. All the mining's in one country. And uh, that isn't decentralized. There's, you know, not enough nodes, that kind of thing, right? Th these are all things you've heard in different ways, right? And so fundamentally, the way of thinking about it uh, that we propose is take a system that purports to be decentralized and then specify a set of subsystems. 
And, uh, you know, there's, there's flexibility in this. I'm going to give an example and then I'm going to come back and then propose various edits. Okay. But for example, you take a, a decentralized system and you say, okay, there's subsystems. There's, uh, let's say it's Bitcoin. You've got miners, you've got nodes, you've got exchanges, you've got uh, holders, and um, you know you've got you've got other pieces here. You've got clients, you've got developers. Okay, let's yeah, say I there's think, six. Okay, yeah, there's six here listed. You got mining, client, developers, exchanges, nodes, and ownership. With the six you laid out. Yes. Yeah. That's right. Right. And that was that was just an example of those six. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's basically like a box of this decentralized system: mining, clients, developers, exchanges, nodes, ownership, and more specifically, mining by reward, client by code base, developers by commits, exchanges by volume, nodes by country, ownership by addresses. And the concept is that public blockchains have subsystems. And if any essential subsystem is centralized or compromised, then the system is centralized or compromised. That's to say, you know, if you can choke point it anywhere, you've choke pointed it. Right. Okay. So what, what do I mean by that? Right. So now uh, this is sort of a generalization of the 51% attack, right? The concept of the 51% attack is if you can capture 51% of mining, then you can compromise the system. Okay. But obviously if you can capture, um, you know, a hundred percent of, developers, or if you can capture the client, the Bitcoin client, you can also capture the system. Um, I mean, that, that's obvious to me. Maybe that's also obvious to you. But if you could do a supply chain attack on the Bitcoin client, right? If you could somehow get uh, something in there, like, you know, if you've seen this log for J and so on, there's very subtle bugs that you can get in. If there isn't sufficient client diversity, it's similar to a mining attack. Okay. So essentially make a bunch of plots and you, you say, okay, um, how centralized is mining? How centralized are clients? How centralized is development? Um, you know, for example, with development, how do we measure centralization? Uh, each engineer makes a certain number of commits. And so let's say the top engineer has made a thousand commits and the second engineer has made 600 and the third has made 300 and the next one has made 100 and so on and so forth. That's like this graph, right? And uh, you can get a sense of how focused and concentrated development is in those first four people versus in the rest of the community, just as a toy example, okay? And you could do this, you know, similarly for mining, you can say, okay, um, block reward, like of all the mined Bitcoin, um, how much is the first guy making? Are they capturing 30%, 60% of the block rewards, or is it more like 5%, right? And, and, and you look at it that way. Or exchange volume. Is there one giant global exchange that had 40% of volume, or is it more spread out across a bunch of them, okay? And um, I mean, now this study was done, you know, now four years ago, okay? Yeah. Uh, and there's folks who have dashboards and stuff updated. So this is, you know, now like, but, but the calculation, of course, you can replicate today and you can update it. And essentially what we found at the time and uh, is that, um, you know, mining was actually fairly decentralized and um, clients were, uh, or, or um, exchanges were fairly decentralized. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the highest level of centralization was in the clients because there's just one code base, Bitcoin Core for Bitcoin and then Geth for Ethereum. Now, what's interesting is um, that the, uh, at least some of the Bitcoin core developers, this was a, you know, a controversial thing in 2017 for, you know, various political reasons. Or whatever. But uh, earlier this year, um, there was actually a, a good post by 
the the lead Bitcoin developer. Um, if I could just throw one question in here. So yeah, part of the art of actually quantifying decentralization, I, as, I presume, I'm, I'm asking you actually, is deciding on the weighting of each of these, like how much weighting you would give to mining versus client versus developers, exchanges, nodes, ownership, et cetera, right? Whereas maybe you think I mean, mining you can, decentralization is more important than ownership or or vice versa, something like that. Yeah. So so what I, I do not have is a, like, so you could basically, I've got a meta framework, right? Mm-hmm. I've got some which says, here's a, you know, to measure decentralization, you're saying effectively any of these essential subsystems, if it's centralized and the whole thing is compromised. Mm-hmm. And then going a little bit further, the thing is that, you know, if I quote a Gini coefficient, that's like 0.91 or 0.85, that doesn't really give a great intuition. This Nakamoto coefficient instead basically says, um, how many entities do you need to compromise? So for example, I need to compromise four miners to get to 51%, but I only need to compromise two clients to get to 51%. Okay. Therefore, um, it's the minimum number of entities compromised to get to 51% control of at least one subsystem. Now, there's a few arbitrary things there. One is maybe 51% control is not actually the true threshold. Right. Um, there's a so-called selfish mining attack, for example, um, which purported to say that it was only needed a third of, of miners' controls. So maybe the threshold is 33%. Um, and so the, the flexible parameters there are A, which subsystems you're looking at, and B, what threshold of control you want on each one, and then mm-hmm. C, what specific metric are you using? For example, with mining, are you using the number of blocks one or using the hash rate contributed? Okay. Mm-hmm. Those are, you know, not exactly the same. They're they're very highly correlated, but but they're they're somewhat different. Okay. Um, and you know, for example, with the development, are you using number of pull requests submitted or number of commits actually, you know, in the client, just as an example. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so the metrics sometimes actually do matter, but maybe the the you know, not necessarily in the margins, okay. Um and uh, so, so subject to those parameters, you can see how centralized it is, okay, or how decentralized it is. And the critical thing about it, and the reason this is actually a useful metric, is something will always be highlighted in red. And that thing that is highlighted in red is the most centralized aspect of the system. It is the bit where given scarce, here's why this is important. Given scarce resources, if, for example, there were only three developers that were doing most commits in the last year. You'd want to allocate your scarce Bitcoin to train more developers to decentralized development mm-hmm. from those three developers. Does that make sense? Right. Mm-hmm. So the, the point of this shows you is the weakest link in the protect, chain. Go ahead. Exactly. That's exactly right. It's, it, it, it quantifies that the weakest link, and it says I'm a pragmatist who wants to protect the Bitcoin ecosystem. And I want to do so by identifying the most centralized component and then devoting resources to decentralizing that. And just keep rinse and repeating because there will always be a most centralized component that I want to decentralize. Interesting. Wow. That beautiful work. Uh, so a conclusion drawn from this work, I think, I mean, I, again, I understand you have a meta framework. There is some subjectivity in the waiting and a lot of subjectivity. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I wanted to make that clear. I basically, I knew people would say, Oh, my favorite <laughs> subsystem wasn't included. This is yeah. really important. Yeah. So you can pick that, 
but it's it it now at least tees it up i think in such a way that it captures the intuition when you see these comments where people say it's not decentralized because exacentralized where that's mining or it's yes. exchanges or it's development or it's or it's when people say uh, ethereum is centralized because vitalik exists you know that actually is here you could add that as a metric you say right. how many leaders are there in the community if there's one named leader then, and and they're doing most of the tweets about it that yeah. actually is legitimately a measure of centralization in some right. way, right? That's what, you know, Bitcoin leaderless, you know? So I think that's a legitimate thing. And you put that substance in there and you know, it's good. Then you've got a metric. And if somebody else has a different metric, now you've at least identified the point of dispute and you yes. can agree to disagree. Right. Right. Which and is what I love. You're a math guy. <laughs> yeah. It just, it takes like the verbal, you know, anger, all the stupid stuff out of the way. And most importantly, even more than, than agreeing to disagree, it gives you a framework for scarce resource allocation. Yeah. Because if developers are the most centralized, boom, let's train more developers. If yeah. mining was the most centralized, right. let's, you know, let's re-decentralize. Go ahead. Yeah, it, it definitely highlights uh, which wheel is squeaky, so to speak. So you know where to put the grease. Yes. Um, let me throw a little wrinkle in here. So Go ahead. it's commonly discussed that Bitcoin's immaculate inception or conception, as some people call it, is key to its decentralized nature, like almost unrepeatable. And I've written about this as well. It's like it there is this path dependence to the emergence of Bitcoin that cannot be repeated, right? We cannot launch Bitcoin 2.0 um, for, for a number of reasons, but we can just capture them under path dependence. That is seems to be like an inherently idiosyncratic event. I don't know that it lends itself to quantification. Is there some way of bridging that gap between or quantifying the um, the inception story of a project in this framework at all? I think it's extremely difficult. Um, all right. So first, let me put my you know like cards on the table. Uh, you know, I think it'd be extremely difficult to replicate Bitcoin. Um, but I don't think it's completely invulnerable. And the reason I say that is it's a piece of software. Mm-hmm. A piece of software can have bugs. And if it does, I mean, like, you know, and that's, that, that penny hasn't yet dropped. For example, have you seen this recent um, attack that uh, took uh, the, the NSO attack? Do you see that? I haven't. No. This is a pretty impressive recent attack where um, there's a cybersecurity firm that found uh, that had this obscure um, image format. Okay, I think JBIG2, not JPEG, but JBIG2, I believe. And they managed to, and you could, there's some binary thing in it where you could flip pixels on and off. And they managed to turn that into raw material where they built like a small um, virtual machine out of flipping pixels in this thing where they could actually execute instructions, do computations. Um, it, it'd be like turning Christmas lights into a computer. Okay. Um, where do, do you see what I'm saying? Right. That's a good you analogy. Do it, but good it's, analogy. <laughs> yeah, it's really hard. Okay. And everybody who saw this, if you're in computer science, you're like, wow. I mean, it would, it's literally like somebody turning Christmas lights into a computer just on a smaller scale. Okay. Cause you're flipping pixels on and off and you're using that to track, you know, your registers and your additions and your subtractions and whatever. Right. Um, that level of sophistication is not being applied to attack BTC yet to my knowledge. Mm-hmm. Okay. We are yet to see 
that level, or maybe we have seen it and it's just sitting around. Okay. Um, and that is actually one of the biggest reasons that I support multiple coins because it's like immune diversity. You know, you're actually a biomedical, you know, person, right? You, you understand why it's important to have an immune repertoire and uh, to not have, um, you know, gosh, what's a, there's a term monoculture. for monoculture. So basically, yeah, monoculture. That's right. Yeah, exactly. If you have a monoculture, you are susceptible to the big one, you know, something that just penetrates all your defenses, right? Mm-hmm. So, so, so I, I just wanted to bring that up because, um, you know, a lot of folks who are very downstream, who aren't looking at the actual code, right? Mm-hmm think that it's about like yelling at people online, but it's not necessarily like that's, I mean, that's part of it. Okay, sure. There's a social defense of it, but the technical defense comes first always, you know, and really smart technical people can, can attack things in ways that people wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily assume, you know, because there's a lot of libraries that Bitcoin uses that other people also use and, you know, auditing every single line of code and all of your dependencies, it's hard, it's possible, but it's really, 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 really hard. Um, So, so that's that's my first kind of point. Um, now, with that said, you know, uh, yeah, I think it's extre- like the thing is that um, the combination of the disappeared founder and so on and so forth that that is that is very difficult to replicate. I completely agree with you on that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so modulo the technical conditions, which I think is Bitcoin's remaining vulnerability. By the way, I don't I don't think it's mining because China took a big hit, you know, mm-hmm. like a, a chop at Bitcoin. And it got pushed out. And there's places now like El Salvador that'll give it refuge or whatever. I think it'd be pretty hard for every country and every state to go against, especially with like red state, cities and states and mm-hmm. some blue states going going for Bitcoin mining. I think it's going to be pretty hard to stop that. Okay. So I don't think it's going to get stopped at the mining level. I don't think, you know, it'll get stopped there. But I think it is the client diversity level and the technical hacks that, that are, I think, the, the biggest issue. This gets me, I just wanted to make this point earlier this year. Vladimir, at the very beginning of the year, uh, Vladimir van der Laan um, basically uh, had an issue where, um, and this is the lead, you know, uh, Bitcoin developer. Okay, uh, his Twitter is um, Orion WL. Okay, uh, he um, basically posted on how. Uh, He'd you know been threatened with a lawsuit, and then they had to kind of take down the Bitcoin white paper. So as a response, we went and got the Bitcoin white paper onto you know the Estonian government website, the Miami web Miami government website. So we did something I think good out of that, okay, yeah. which was you know right. But um, the, uh, Orion actually wrote a really good post, um, and it's basically titled uh, "The Widening Gyre," okay, um, from January 2021. And essentially, um, what he wrote about was very smart stuff, which was we need to decentralize distribution, decentralize the release process process and release signing, decentralized development hub, um, and then finally, decentralizing Bitcoin's node software itself. Now, actually, a former um, employee of mine from a long time ago, who's now you know been independent for a long time, Carl Dong, um, and he's an intern for you know like a, like a summer, very smart kid. Um, has a, a thing called libbitcoin kernel, which uh, you know essentially this squares the circle. People have been like, oh, you know, if you had multiple client implementations, that could cause consensus bugs. So libbitcoin underscore kernel is um, a consensus project 
that, or rather it, it uh, includes. It, it basically factors the consensus code into one library. And then everything else, you can now have multiple clients, all of which import libbitcoin kernel. And now you've reduced some of the centralization risk to just libbitcoin kernel, which could be a common bit of code among a bunch of things um, that, uh, you know, maybe it's a, it's a relatively small amount of code. So now you've taken the hit of essentially encoding the protocol into a, a bit of consensus code across clients. This, I think, addresses the last major threat to BTC, which is the lack of client diversity, okay? Because mining, I don't think is an issue and so on, right? So here's, here's that post. I think it's worth, uh, you know, if, if people want to support commercially, financially, you know, the, a lot, you know or, or with their own effort, you know, just, just shared it over here. And here's kind of my, um, you know, like tweets or whatever on that. So, but coming back up, um, from an engineering standpoint, I never, uh, I, the problem with words, you know, or phrases, I, I understand where it's coming from and I'm not attacking it. Okay. But the, my issue with phrases like immaculate conception and so on is it's like, you know, we are with God, right? Because mm-hmm. that's where that comes from, right? The immaculate conception and so on, right? And, you know, like God may be great, but, you know, it's saying uh, trust in God, but keep your powder dry. <laughs> I've never heard that one, you know? but I get it. <laughs> You get it, right? I, so, I always heard, you know, trust, trust everybody, God. but always cut the cards. Not really related to God, but, you know, hope for the best, prepare for the worst type of thing. Yeah, exactly. That's right. And so so essentially, you know, trust in God, but keep your powder dry is basically like, you know, meaning, okay, we might need the guns anyway, right? <laughs> and um, so, and, and you know, fr- fr- frankly, that's what most people do is uh, they, they do prepare. I mean, you know, like, like. You need to go and work to put food on the table. It's not just to magically appear and so on, right? So for anything one truly cares about, you are putting in that effort, right? You're and you're working. thinking about yeah. how it can go wrong and you're yeah. thinking about the yeah. failure modes and, and whatnot. So yeah. that, that's where my head is typically at. I don't know if that makes any sense. No, that's helpful. Very helpful. Um, so let me throw another curveball at you if you don't mind here. What would sure. this scenario look like where... Bitcoin is attacked. I, I mean, I guess choose whichever vulnerability you think is most um, probable. And then would could that actually lead to Bitcoin failing and a new coin succeeding? Or, or is there the possibility, because a lot of what I've studied is that the UTXO set itself could be ported into you know, Bitcoin 2.0 or something, if you will, if there's some kind of catastrophic failure. Yes. So, so I've written about that, right? So yeah. How would that play out? I've probably read your work, actually. I didn't know that, but, um, <laughs> you know, you read a lot of stuff, you forget who wrote it. But sure. if you could just walk us yeah. through that scenario, I think that'd be great. Yeah. So basically, so so first, how could, uh, let, let me go through the second part first, right? Mm-hmm. So the thing that I think is very difficult to attack is uh, the blockchain as opposed to the protocol, right? Mm. That is to say, because of the nature of how Bitcoin was done or or Bitcoin works, the blockchain may be the most replicated database in the world at this point. Okay, mm-hmm. you you have it on your on on some laptop. I have it on multiple computers. Like millions and millions of people have a copy of the Bitcoin blockchain everywhere and nowhere. And due to the go ahead, it's everywhere and nowhere. Yeah, and due to the fact that the way that it's constructed, um, you can't mess with a single byte without it being detected. Mm-hmm. Okay, I mean, you might be a block or two off, 
but but we can we can verify we can locally validate mm-hmm. so because of that you can that that is the history of an economy back to t equals zero okay mm-hmm. that is every single debit and credit down to the satoshi for 12 years of the bitcoin economy yeah and so that ledger can be imported into another chain um the, the, the example that i've given in the past is uh, let's say that um, you know some you know surveillance technology is deployed. Okay, Bitcoin does not have on-chain privacy, uh, or it does. Okay, there's confidential transactions and stuff like that, but it's not ideal. It, you know, it, it's not something which is idiot-proof on-chain privacy. Let me put it like that. Okay, mm-hmm. something like um, Monero, or in my view, even better, like Zcash or some of the new stuff like Tornado Cash and you know Beanstalk and whatnot. Right. Um, like I've invested in a lot of these zero knowledge things, okay. But basically, those those are theoretical. Um, those are theoretically strong guarantees against um, surveillance, mm-hmm. okay. Because there, with Zcash, it's not really about the privacy, uh, the private transaction alone. It's about the privacy set. Everybody mm-hmm. who does a private transaction and puts their money into the Z address, the Z addresses, that's mm-hmm. a like a large and growing set of basically um, transactions where you, you you can't no no external surveillance thing can determine who was sending to who. Okay, mm-hmm. so it's possible, for example, that um, in twenty twenty seven or something or or whatever that Zcash, uh, you know, by consensus in the community pauses, freezes, and imports the Bitcoin blockchain in, in such a way that everybody who's got a Bitcoin private key gets, um, you know, the equivalent amount of ZEC. Okay. And I think that in the event of an attack on Bitcoin, being able to import the Bitcoin blockchain into these other chains in this way, it'd almost be like this gigantic stock split, you know, to go back to the religious analogy, a Tower of Babel moment. Okay, mm-hmm. where you lean on the decentralization, um, where you get basically a piece in like 50 or 100 or whatever other chains that can import the entire Bitcoin blockchain. Okay. And essentially, if you've got a private key, then you can move funds on that chain. Now, what that would do to the market cap is very much TBD. It's extremely difficult to predict what happens with any coin market caps of any kind. But like, you know, for every, uh, let's say Bitcoin is at 100,000 when that happened. The sum total of all of these other coin, you know, values might be forty thousand or or something like that. I don't, I can't predict, but it'd be it'd probably be less at, at least at the beginning, but but it'd be something like that. So it'd be a huge pain in the ass. There'd probably be wallets that would arise. There'd be meta wallets that manage to try to manage all of this. But in the same way that you have USDC, which is a stable coin, USDC that's loaded on. Um, Ethereum and USDC that's loaded on Solana and so on, you'd have BTC on these other chains. Okay. Now, the reason I think this is more and more possible is because of wrap BTC and whatnot. Um, you know, I, I'm not actually that concerned about Bitcoin scaling anymore because you can obviously do off-chain Bitcoin transactions, you know, load Bitcoin onto an exchange and then within Coinbase or Binance or something like that, you can do off-chain transactions between people. Um, but you can also do like wrap Bitcoin, okay, or trustless wrap Bitcoin, like Ren BTC or things like that, okay. Mm-hmm. And there's a website called wrapbitcoin.com. And this, frankly, I mean, look, nothing against Lightning, it's got decent traction now, actually. Um, but this is something which is also being used alongside Lightning and that at least appears to have very high transaction volume on chain. And certainly I know a lot of folks who are using it, okay. So 
the point being that you would say load a hundred million or a billion with one on-chain transaction into another blockchain, and then you would uh, you'd use things that represent BTC on that chain, and then you'd bring it back. Okay, and so that's like chain interoperability and and so on. Very very much like loading BTC into an exchange like like Coinbase or Binance, and then and pulling it out when you wanted. You'd load it onto another chain and then pull it out when you wanted. Okay, this is already happening. We we are we are already seeing this. Okay, so that mechanism could potentially be used to not just load some, but all or a very large amount of BTC into other chains. So chain interop gives us the possibility of a digital Dunkirk. Okay, mm-hmm. in the event of a true emergency, um, the the Bitcoin ledger won't disappear. Okay, let me pause there and see see if, if that makes yeah, any so, sense. And come back to some of this. No, that makes sense. My question though is what is happening to the Bitcoin mining network during such an event? Is it just switching? I mean, the, the, the ledger is getting imported into these other chains, I guess, then the mining network itself would flip to mining those other chains? Well, uh, so it, it depends on what the, the kind of the attack is, right? Right. Do you know, do you know what happened with Iran, the, the Natan cyber attack? No, I don't. So, um, you know, this is something that's like interesting to think about. Okay. But basically, uh, I, I think, you know, there's something called Stuxnet. Okay. And this was this very, very sophisticated um, computer attack in 2010, um, which uh, essentially infected Iranian centrifuges and made them spin in such a way that they tore themselves apart thereby non-violently blowing up the Iranian nuclear program, okay? Mm. And um, you could imagine that some malicious actor could try to make miners melt down, mm. okay? If you could get something into the, you know, uh, Bitcoin Core, you know, related mining code um, or some mining software that a lot of miners run, People could try to make miners themselves melt down, right? This is literally a physical attack on infrastructure that came from computer code. Stuxnet sh- shows proof of concept. Go ahead. Interesting. No, I'm just I've never heard of this. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's it sounds insanely sci-fi, but I think we're going to see all kinds of crazy. We we have not yet entered the time of total cyber war. Right. Okay, that is coming. Yeah. You know how like people talked about total war. In yeah. the uh, the 20th century, you know how yeah. there had been these sort of rules that civilized people played by during war. They didn't like yeah. go after and and then gradually, and then suddenly, um, the world passed into the time into the time of total war, yeah. where it wasn't like you know the nobility slugging it out in a battlefield, but it was terror bombing of civilians and all kinds of crazy stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think we are going to pass into the time of not total war, but total cyber war, mm. where every device and every person at every time can be ha- like all kinds of crazy, crazy stuff, you know? Mm. And, um, you know, so, you know, there's like 50 different things that one has to do about that. You know, it's very difficult to, to protect or whatever, but um, with respect to, to, to Bitcoin itself, you have to sweat all of these things 
mm-hmm. because tweeting isn't going to stop this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like uh, again, nothing against the social defense, but you know, the yelling at someone on Twitter is not going to harden harden a technical system. Go ahead. Yeah, the, the technical defense is clearly it takes more primacy than the social defense. There's no technical. There's no yes. social. There's nothing to defend socially. So point well taken there. Do you then view these alternative projects or positions that you're in as insurance policies on Bitcoin in a way? In a sense, yes, but in a different way than people think, because it's it's something where, um, I mean, like, I don't think you can be decentralized with only one coin. Mm. So right. it's not so much this, like a lot of people ahead. come at this from a monetary theory standpoint that, you know, money is the ultimate liquid global network. It tends towards one. Bitcoin is the one. Gold was the one before it. You're saying it's not about that so much as it is these technical attack vectors. Exactly. That's right. I come at it as an engineer and mm-hmm. I think about it in terms of single point of failure and uh, how one wants to mitigate against that. And also with some knowledge of these attacks that I've been talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there are some absolutely crazy science fiction like computer attacks that are out there. And um, I'm not sure where, you know, like there's some good developers, obviously on, on uh, you know, I, I, you know, Alex Morcos and the folks at Chain. There's some very smart people who are working on this. But this is hard, right? Mm. Uh, this is this is hard stuff. You you slip up once. One person slips up once on one line of code four years ago, mm-hmm. and that might be a vulnerability. Hey, everybody! As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider Nidig your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. Now that all makes sense. Do you ever think about the own like the incentives that you're facing as well as you perceive that because clearly we're looking at a highly complex world that the the possibility space seems damn near infinite like which way you could go but one of the mm-hmm. things i've noticed with if you're talking to established keynesian economists or people that lean more <laughs> there's less and less of them every day but people that kind sure. of support the status quo of, of central banking their incentives tend to blind them to things. So I just, I'm constantly trying to do this myself. Like, sure, what, sure. What so, are my so incentives? How, 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 what I is my blindness? So, so, so am, am, I, am I incentive blinded in some way? So, so and I understand where you're coming from. Um, the thing is that uh, I think if you look at how, it's a, so I don't think of, um, 
let me see if I, how I can phrase this this way. If you look at Satoshi's early writings, okay, Satoshi was an engineer. Satoshi mm -hmm. was not a troll. Satoshi did not think of Bitcoin as invulnerable. Um, Satoshi actually supported other coins. He talked about the concept of a name coin explicitly as a way to bootstrap a, a DNS. Okay. Um, as you know, there's he's written both for and against block size increases or what have you. Uh, insofar as you want to try to treat Satoshi as like a quasi-religious figure and go and parse his his scriptures, you know, his direct writings, they exist. And what they show, in my view, is somebody who's like a pragmatic engineer and who thinks about things in terms of trade-offs. For example, he, you know, when when WikiLeaks was going to use Bitcoin, he said, do not bring it on. Our young project couldn't take the heat. Okay. He right. didn't think the thing was invulnerable. Right. And he knew that it could be attacked at that point and 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 so on. He also, when someone said um, that, oh, you know, Bitcoin can be attacked, he's like, you know what? Yes, but it might bias a terrain of freedom for some years because mm -hmm. Nutella and others have had their heads cut off, or rather, um, centralized services have had their heads cut off, but the decentralized ones seem to be holding their own. Okay. Mm -hmm. So he was um, neither an optimist nor a pessimist, but you know, determined, mm -hmm. right, to try to make it not an optimist like Pollyanna, like, hey, we're super decentralized, not a pessimist like, oh, of course, Bitcoin is going to zero, but rather with effort and with a little bit of luck, maybe we can make it work if we try, right, which pragmatist. I think where you want to be. Yeah, yeah, a pragmatist, exactly, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And this is, you know, a common trade I've seen in a lot of excellent, you know, startup founders and engineers is it's hard, but we might be able to do it. Mm -hmm. And it's neither the, you know, wide-eyed religious fundamentalism, nor is it this, you know, status skepticism. Okay. So, so that being my orientation, I mean, for what it's worth, like I've done very well financially in a lot of different areas, right. In biomedicine and in other things, you know, like just pure computing stuff that has nothing to do with cryptocurrency. Obviously I've done well in cryptocurrency as well, being fortunate. Okay. So, um, at least for me, since you're asked about me, like money does not drive me. In fact, actually, like for the first, you know, almost 30 years of my life, I was a career academic and just basically meditated on mathematics every day. Okay. That's all I did. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it was never like a money driven person. Um, and only really got into this whole space, uh, you know, with money as a tool to accomplish things like, like, like as a shaped charge, like dynamite to go and blow up obstacles. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. So I need to build a large robotic factory, um, you know, for sequencing, uh, DNA sequencing. All right. I'm going to need money to do that. Uh, okay. I'm going to need to employ people to accomplish X, Y, and Z and to do data science. I'm going to need money to do that. That is always how I thought of money as a tool. And mm -hmm. even today, um, that is, you know, being used on a meta level to invest in people to, to accomplish things. Right. Um, and the reason for that is basically that there's so much, only so much stuff you can buy. You know, what do I buy? I buy, I buy whiteboards, right? But what you can build, that's much more interesting than what you can buy, right? You can build a trip to Mars. You can't buy it. You can build life extension. You can't buy it. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, maybe we can build a solution to, you know, the remand hypothesis, you know, or mm -hmm. we, we can't necessarily buy it, or maybe we can put up a prize for it, right? Mm -hmm. We can, we can help it along with capital, but you can't just pick it off the shelf. So, that's just like how I think since you asked about, you know, interrogating one. So, and I think that in general, political slogans and stuff like that are almost like direction headings, like Northeast, South, and West, unless there's a limiting principle, unless there is some point at which, you know, it's actually too much, 
then anybody will take a given ideology to the point that it's actually bad, even if it was initially good. It's like, you know, West is good. All right, let's keep going West. All right, we're in the Pacific Ocean. We're in the drink. We're like swimming. You know, there's a sharks there. So we must keep going West, right? Like there's, there's a point at which go West young man means like, Hey, we'll stop. I didn't mean go into the Pacific ocean, right. And like right. dive in, you know, go ahead. Yeah. You just need some so, disciplinary force, right. Some grounding in reality of some kind. Otherwise you need some grounding this is the human, we are explorers, right. We will actually just go to the extreme forever until there's some, uh, what is the what is the term here? Like a, a pullback of some limiting kind. principle. Yeah, limiting principle. Yeah, some limiting principle, some feedback. Exactly. Feedback, yep. limiting principple, stopping criteria, whatever you want to mm-hmm. call it, right? Um, and the thing about it is uh, there's there's nothing so good that it can't be done to excess, you know. Mm-hmm. So almost you know, saying the dose makes a poison, right? Mm-hmm. Like right. Obviously, you know, too much water can kill somebody. They can drown, right? Um, you know, too much food can kill somebody. Like almost anything could kill you, no matter how good it might be in small or medium doses. Mm-hmm. So, so because of that, like, you know, one of the things about the, um, like the modern Western mindset is it's all, I, because of the nature of Twitter, people don't just throw slogans at each other. They start thinking in terms of these just, just dumb slogans. And I think it's better to think about in terms of, you know, at, at the uh, at the expense of using a slogan to combat slogans, sliders rather than slogans. Okay, um, and what I mean by that is, you know, go full remote. Oh no, go fully in person. Well, that's like a slider. Okay, right. and you know, oh, use Google Docs or Microsoft Office. That's also a slider. You know, mm-hmm. we're we're all you know, um, uh, you know, we're fully decentralized, fully decentralized. All of those things you can think of them as sliders. Mm-hmm. And in particular, here's something that one finds, I think. If you take somebody who seems extremely ideological on Twitter or any other environment, and they're just like wide-eyed, this seems like 100% of this, and then you actually make them CEO, where they're responsible for the livelihoods of others. Now, sometimes they actually are, you know, they actually are insane, but, but many of them very quickly <laughs> will will come back from 100% on something to within practical constraints they come back to 55 or 60% or 51% you know versus 47% of the, like uh, there's a moderating effect of actually having to make decisions in real life having your skin in the game that pulls yes. having skin in the game that's right otherwise the people won't report to you right like yeah. if you're you know uh, like one way of putting it is um if if you are certainly if you're too socialist and you're paying everybody uh you know equally or you're not paying people or whatever um you know that's that's going to make it difficult to run an organization but if you're too ruthlessly capitalist and you treat everybody like you know a mercenary or you know you you don't you don't give some room for human frailty or or what have you you'll also lose people you know, mm-hmm. and those are those are caricatures, of course, but mm-hmm. there's caricatures that you might see in reality, you know, and, uh, you know, if you don't pay for merit or if you, you know, are too mercenary and ruthless, then, you know, people will treat you the same way. Right. Mm-hmm. And so there's there's often um, there's, there's a, I mean, it sounds so trivial to put it this way, but often uh, I mean, there's a balance. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, so so many ideological points on the compass, in my view, are direction headings, you know, and it's like, here's a specific, we are at a certain state ideologically, 
here's a direction heading. Let's move in that direction. But then, you know, you've reached the top of the hill. And then to keep moving in the direction will actually start bringing you down. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so this is why I think about it in terms of optimalism, which mm-hmm. is, um, you know, as opposed to mere optimism, optimalism means uh, rather than, and also as opposed to maximalism, optimalism means setting an objective function, making that explicit. And by making it explicit, you take the hit of having people argue about it. And then you ascend that objective function and you, you, you get to the max and then you figure out what the next objective is. Now, do you know what runs like this? Uh, every successful startup. I was going to say some organizations. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So every successful startup in China runs like this, where they have a key metric and then they're optimizing it. For example, during their growth phase, Airbnb and Uber measured GMV, like gross market, uh, gross marketplace value or gross merchandise value, which is the total value of all transactions through their marketplace. Yeah. Why they use that metric? Because in order to boost that, right. everything has to establish the network effect. Exactly. You need yeah. the drivers and you need the riders. They need yeah. to be able to transact. They need to be able to transact in volume. You mm-hmm. need enough quality that drivers and riders keep coming back and so on and so forth, right? Mm-hmm. For that to keep increasing, it kind of pulls on a lot of strengths, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, th- there's also the Andy Grove concept of uh, for every metric, you also want a second paired metric that you know addresses the deficits of the first, okay? Mm-hmm. For example, if you just tasked your recruiters with bringing in a lot of recruits, what's going to happen you're going to give them incentive of quantity and they're going to abandon quality. So you need a second paired metric, usually a quality metric paired with the quantity metric. You know, I want a lot of recruits, but I want them all to have gotten at least X on this entrance exam that tests their basic programming competency or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that quality metric restricts the abuses of the quantity metric. And so you're looking at in, in the XY plane, not simply along one axis alone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's now, your limiting principle you can, to your objective you're maximizing almost. Yeah, exactly. So, right. So the thing is there, there are some, um, you know, optimalists and maximalists can be aligned in the short or medium term because they mm-hmm. both might be, might determine that there's, this is the direction to hill climb, right? Mm-hmm. The difference is when they get to the top of the hill, the maximalist will maybe still keep going and start actually going down from the optimum to some like insane position, okay? Mm-hmm. And another word for maximalism is fundamentalism. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's basically something that says too much is never enough. Mm-hmm. You know, and that to me is always bad. Uh, <laughs> now it's funny. Again, you, one can quote the slogans back and you can say, oh, moderation and everything except moderation, right? Right. Or, um, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It gets fractal you know, at or, that point. <laughs> it gets fractal or, or yeah. you know, there's a, gosh, a Goldwater thing, which is like, uh, extremism and defense of uh, virtue is no vice, that kind of thing, right? Yeah. And so then at that point, you know, basically when when was now when it's sort of, it's super meta because someone's quoting a slogan back to you <laughs> to, to attack your slogan that's attacking slogans, okay? Yeah. So it's very yeah. funny, okay? Yeah. But um, where I come to is, you, you know, that saying revolutions are judged by their fruits, mm-hmm. right? So- you know, Lee Kuan Yew, he did capitalist things, he did socialist things, he did X things and Y things, he did things that didn't seem to make sense and things that did. But net, he built Singapore. And that's a place that lots of people want to get into. 
And, um, you know, it's a, it's a really beautiful country. I'm not saying it's everybody's cup of tea for everything, but I think on net, you'd have to call it a win. And, uh, you know, the, the founding fathers for their faults built the United States of America, which again, pretty darn impressive thing net, Mm -hmm. you know, in terms of the run over 200 years, right? I think I've got a lot of criticism of it today. We think we all do, but during its run, pretty impressive, right? Similarly, you know, so, so, so from that standpoint, whereas the French revolution, the Russian revolution, eh, not so much, Mm. you know, (laughs) like those just mass murder, the guillotine, you know, the red terror didn't really, those revolutions judged by their fruits didn't turn out too well. Okay. And the reason you kind of need something like that is revolutions by their nature are often extra legal, you know, people, they have to be right. (laughs) Yeah. They have to be right. You're changing the law, you know, like you have this shimmery surface. Go ahead. No, I was agreeing with you. Yeah. So you have the shimmery surface and on like, then you're through the looking glass and what was legal becomes illegal and what's legal becomes illegal and what's yeah. forbidden becomes mandatory and vice versa. Right. Like you just, the, the flippening, right. The, yeah. the legal flippening. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, essentially human flourishing is ultimately where you're trying to align with, with that objective function. And, you know, so, so, so for example, now coming back to your point, like, you know, there's only one money and so on and so forth. Um, I, you know, this is something where, a lot of it depends on, I think, what your definition of money is. And maybe that's mm-hmm. true for some people. But um, there's 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 certainly network effects. But there's also anti-network effects because humans don't want too much power in one thing. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why we do have multiple currencies around the world. That's why we do have multiple countries around the world. That's why people do start companies. That's why there's not just one financial instrument that everybody piles into for everything. There's that's why we have revolutions. That's why we have revolutions. That's right. So, so in a bizarre way, like you know, when people say, "Oh, there's only one money, and everybody wants what," I'm like, "But practically speaking, I know that person, whoever I'm talking to, has a portfolio." Okay, they 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 don't. The only thing they have is not Bitcoin. They have at a minimum. Um, you know, they probably have some cash to go and buy, you know, food or whatever. Okay. Even if they have hundred percent BTC and they only change, right. Well, they, they have an inventory of, um, an apartment or a house and a car or, or they have some other goods, right. right. They have made some allocation out of this into other goods. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, so this is what I mean about like the, the CEO when the CEOs, when you get an ideologue and you put them in the CEO position, they actually start making some compromises and moderating, even if they don't mm-hmm. admit it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. And a large fraction of folks, um, you know, they effectively have a portfolio. Uh, and, and the thing is, I, I, part of this is, I think a lot of, you know, quote, Bitcoin maximalists are actually Twitter maximalists. Or like maximalists because they're they're maximizing their likes or their following or their their Twitter stuff. They're not actually maximizing the amount of Bitcoin they have um, because that because if is, they were I mean, they wouldn't be on Twitter all the time. <laughs> yeah, I mean you know the 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 only unfakeable measure of how pro Bitcoin you are is how much Bitcoin you hold. Mm-hmm. Right. That's that's it. Right. Yeah. And everything else is just words and noise. And you know the thing about like how. Uh, you know, I don't necessarily agree with this post, but I think it's funny. Like everybody's a scammer, you know, that thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Like uh, it's a great post, actually. Uh, by, I think Goldstein wrote it. It's a good, good article. Yeah, I I, I think it's good. I, I like Goldstein, by the way, you know, but 
I think it's on his site. I'm not sure if actually it's by him or Daniel Kravitz or what have you, but basically uh, the reason, so the, the good thing, there's a good and a bad part about that post, right? Uh, the good part about that post is basically like, you know, trust objective metrics in a, um, you know, when there's a chaotic time and there's incentive for faking and so on, yeah. trust objective metrics, right? In a line of, that's and a good Trust part. self-interest. The, yeah, but so the problem is the bad thing about it is, Twofold, first on the narrow and then the broad, right? Self-interest is useful when you're dealing with evil people, but not with stupid people. Did we ever talk about this? Uh, we did. We talked about evil, so, stupid so access. Yeah, we did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so my kind of just to recap, my four-part yeah. breakdown is um, the good person helps others without concern for themselves. Okay. The smart person helps others while also helping themselves. The uh, evil person harms others while helping themselves and the stupid person harms others while harming themselves. Okay. So now you'd much rather in some ways deal with evil than stupid because with evil, you can at least do a deal effectively or align interests in such a way that there's, uh, since they're, they're, they're smart enough to understand what's there's a limiting principle. They, They are basically trying to, um, or, or, or there's the intelligence rather for, for alignment. They, they are trying to help themselves. Yeah. And if you can convince them that this action, and, and not just to convince, but deliver on it, that this action benefits them more than trying to harm you, you can align them. The stupid doesn't get that. And, you know, for example, at the beginning of COVID, right, um, you know, the eternal question for me was, are these tech journos stupid or evil? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, because like, are they actually lying and evil or are they just too stupid? To, and, you know, we're very fortunate that with COVID it's not the Spanish flu. Okay. It's not mm-hmm. going to be a hundred million dead worldwide, but it's going to be on the order of 10 million. Yeah. And so it's actually like, it's like pretty bad, but it's not like, it's not the epidemic that cuts down people in their prime. Okay. The, it, it's just at that level where it's like a Rorschach in some ways, but it is not what the Spanish flu was where people in their twenties were dropping dead. Okay? Right. In which case, you know, like children were dying and, and so like, then it'd be a different kind of reaction, I think in some ways. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and people who were ideological about it today aren't really ideological. They're ideological subject to, you know, some perceived risk, you know, mm-hmm. if COVID was 10 or 50 X or whatever more lethal, if it was like the virus from contagion, I think more people would take the vaccine, for example, it's because, mm-hmm. Um, they're seeing that system symptoms are variable. So, so what I'm saying is it's not like a principled, oh, I'll, I'll never take the vaccine ever, blah, blah. It is based in part on a pragmatic calculation, okay? Whether that's admitted or not. Yeah. All right. So the, uh, why do I bring up the COVID thing? Well, early in COVID, if you may remember now, distant memory, but, but January, February, 2020, a lot of positions were reversed or flipped or what have you. And the journos were extremely contemptuous of the concept that this virus out of China could potentially be a big deal to the point that they attacked and tried to shame anybody who said, take precautions. Okay. Now, you know, at that time, uh, people in tech were attacked for, you know, saying, hey, you know, this virus coming out of China, they shut down the parades in China. Should we maybe shut down the parades in, in the U.S.? Just, you know, maybe like close a border? Uh, should we get started on like some vaccines and masks and other stuff? And this and that was just pure contempt. 
from these, frankly, imbeciles who, mm-hmm. did, you know, don't know the difference between DNA and RNA, right? <laughs> these 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 tech journos, they also don't know tech, right? And that, to me, answered the question of, are they stupid or evil? Because they're just stupid. Because a month or two months later, they were crapping their pants, you know, <laughs> hoping for these people who knew math and science to save them. Yeah. Right? Right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, right? And, and so, so they like disable the civilizational immune system where in the event of a true plague, which this wasn't fortunately, but it was, it's pretty bad. It's just, as I said, it's 10 million dead. It's not a hundred million dead. Yeah. Okay. Like, you know, I think it's like 6 million or something that's at now. And by the time, you know, like we actually have uh, like this thing gets to the end, you know, if it gets to the end, I think it's going to be on the order of 10. It's on the order of 10. Okay. Yeah. So it's not a hundred. And, uh, but, but had it been that, you know, contagion like virus with bodies in mass graves and so on, like, you know, in fact, by the way, early on, I think that was happening. If you look at the number of deaths, it was on an exponential. Yeah. Okay. Potentially, potentially because there's various theories on this, but one is that, um, you know, if you required multiple exposures to get the virus, then those folks who had just by bad luck of the genetic draw, the least natural immunity, mm-hmm. like the early exposures got them. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then those folks who are getting it later have had four exposures or six exposures and only now, boom, you suddenly get infected. And if you, this is one mathematical model that could lead to this, there's others. But if you assume that um, your immunity dictates both the number of exposures and the severity of it, then the people who were earlier might've had a more severe case, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Right. Mm-hmm. So we didn't know where that thing was going to ramp until we're fortunate that it kind of plateaued out at a certain, if you go to Google and you do like COVID deaths, you'll see it goes like whoosh like this up yeah. to April of 2020. And then it, it flattens out. It's not flat, flat, yeah. but it's not the exponential that it was. Early right. On. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, point being, bring this all the way back. That's why self-interest is not a, fully accurate guide. There's no more self-interest than not dying. And these journos basically did not have the interest to actually go and research something that a month later, two months later, they admitted that they were very scared of. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, They basically, do you see what I'm saying? That's like, I do. It's it's just funny that that it's a lack of awareness of reality. You're out of touch with reality somehow that, the, two, months, two months later, they realized that they were, I mean, I don't know if they realized they at least changed their behavior that was opposite to what, what was hurting their self-interest two months prior, all of a sudden was serving it. Even worse than that. Yeah. Even worse. Like, you know, these organizations should have gotten the corporate death penalty. There should have been judicial mm-hmm. dissolution. You know, mm-hmm. BuzzFeed had this article, don't worry about coronavirus, worry about the flu. Then, and I criticized it at the time. Then they stealth added the headline. That had 10 million views. They took down the number of views. You know, wow. uh, NYT had beware the pandemic panic. And, yeah. You know, Recode had no handshakes, please. These absolute... The reason I'm so mad at them is because they basically disabled the early warning system, you know, for clicks. Yeah. They made, yeah. you know, and and again, very fortunate that now, of course, where we are today is something, and I actually mentioned this early on, was, you know, I, I hope we don't meet this 9-11 with a TSA and then an Iraq, mm-hmm. but we're all, that's exactly right. what happened, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, you for know, you sure. got this... Yeah, but 
Anyway, so so with, with you know at least the TSA part, the Iraq bit would be if people start try to start a war with China <laughs> over the you know over, over over the lab leak, right? That's yeah. also why the lab leak thing, which was initially called a conspiracy theory, is now. In, in circulation because, uh, you know, it's something that is politically useful. Now, do I believe I actually posted on the lab leak last last spring, you know, and uh, there's there's some very good pseudonymous research at project dash evidence um, on this topic. Uh, and uh, and I think it's quite plausible. Um, I think molecular phylogenetics could resolve it. Uh, to actually look at like the you know, origins of the virus. Anyway, one thing I do want to say, I want to thank you. So you've helped me actually sharpen my thinking here is that I've labeled myself freedom maximalist or freedom maximalism, but the limiting principle of that is private property. It's the boundary of other people's person and property. Like this is kind of the, I'm not taking credit for originating this. This is just the laissez-faire, you know, libertarian mindset, but I think that that's just a good way to frame it is you're, you're optimizing for freedom, but your limiting principle is private property. So that's just a useful, useful framing. Well, well, yes, but, but let me poke up, let me poke a little bit, right. Which is, I think we have, a, you have a sort of a civilizational background, right. Mm. That we've, we've inherited that we've, we've got, we sort of mm. take for granted, which is um, it's a relatively high trust society. Unfortunately, that is declining. Mm-hmm. You know, but in a relatively high trust society, um, you can get food at, you know, like Starbucks or whatever. It's not poisoned. Okay. Mm-hmm. You can walk down the street and that guy isn't going to try to stab you like Venezuela and just mm-hmm. take your, your money. Um, you know, you, you can do a deal with someone. They're not going to try to cheat you, you know, like, like in a, um, like, uh, a developing world country, you know, mm-hmm. stereotypically. Right. And, so the the thing is that um, you you sort of find, in my view, um, that cryptocurrency, the Bitcoin, makes progressives more libertarian and libertarians more progressive. Okay, mm. let me explain what I mean by that. Okay, because I know that's a poke, <laughs> that's a provocation. Okay, so making progressives more libertarian—that's the obvious one. Okay, they see money can exist outside the state. Right, they see these incredible gains. They see uh, the technological innovation. They see all these things that Krugman pounding his dusty copy of Econ 101 could never conceive, right? That inflation actually is bad, that it's a, you know, a seizure of money and all, all these things that you've written about and that, that I basically agree with, okay? Um, on the other hand, how does it make, how does, how does Bitcoin as cryptocurrency, how does, web, how does it make uh, libertarians more progressive? Well, what you find is if you're actually operating a service in this area, like a cryptocurrency exchange or something like that, mm-hmm. you find that you need to rebuild something much like a state. You need some mm-hmm. kind of identity. You need you need some kind of anti-fraud. Okay. You need um some kind of star rating system, some kind of reputational system. Otherwise, you don't have actually a profitable service because uh the people on your exchange are trying to scam other people on your exchange, are trying to defraud people. You effectively need something like a rating system and a group of of, you know, what you call police or computer security people on your site to make sure that A is not hacking B and, and vice versa, right? Mm-hmm. And so now th- this is not coming back to where you were. I don't think it's coming full circle. As I mentioned, what I think, you know, progress is like, it's like a helix, right? It looks like a circle if you project it down 
into the, just the XY plane, but we actually are making progress on the Z axis. You know, you go IBM to Microsoft yeah. to Google to Facebook, right? Like there, there, there is progress, right? Yeah. And so this new state is better than the old state, but mm. it has aspects of the old state, but they're like V2 or V3 or V5, right? right. And so because of that, I would never call myself um, a libertarian or a liberal or a conservative or this, because at different points, you know, sometimes what you need is actually more order and not more freedom. That, yeah, agree, what I mean agreed. by that is more order. Yeah. And I think, well, and this is drawing on some of your writing, like these network states you're describing, they're sort yes. of like non-coercive states, right? Like you're opting into the rules. And if you don't like the rules, you opt yes. out and move elsewhere. So, and that's what, that's what I'm getting at when I say the limiting principle of private property is that we've, we're maximizing freedom to the point of non-coercion, right? You're not going to cross that boundary. I'm not going to go and enslave 100 people because it gives me more freedom, right? That's That right. would be the boundary. Right, right. right. And, and I think basically, so I think the most important ethical slash practical question of this century, and I actually don't know what the answer is going to be, but I hope it comes out right, is, um, you know, I think we're, we haven't yet really start. I mean, we're just starting the century. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, you know how people say like, there's a short 20th century, 1917 to 1991, you know, they bookend mm -hmm. it with the Russian revolution. Right. right. Um, you could also say 1914 to 1991, if you bookend it with world war one. Right. Mm -hmm. So this century um, I think is going to be a centralized East and a decentralized West. If we are on pace for a centralized East and a decentralized West, the problem is that that centralized East will have different values and their value will be order above all else, especially if they see an American anarchy, especially if they see um, cryptocurrency and so on leading in their view to what they would consider disorder in the same way they think of total free speech as disorder, right? Yeah. And we have to hope that the group of people with that alternate ideology ultimately generates less power mm. than the decentralized world. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, we may, you know, prefer our ethics, but if it turns out that a highly organized centralized state with 1.4 billion people is able to steamroll a bunch of peaceful decentralized republics, that's a problem. Yeah. And that is not an impossibility. You know, I cannot say that that's a mathematical impossibility. You can, you can, you can see examples in history where both are the case. Those, those mm -hmm. all those decentralized republics were able to ward off this empire, and you can see the opposite too. You know, right. So that's what I just say. There is basically ultimately um, the ethics that survive are the ethics that generate sufficient power to survive. Yep, absolutely agree. Um, I, I'm writing a piece right now, actually, sort of aimed at Jordan Peterson because he. He talks about power a lot, but he talks about it in a very monochrome sense. Where just I think he's mostly okay. referring referring to I, political. I power. like him overall. Yeah, I think a lot of his stuff is good. I don't agree with all of it, but a lot of his stuff is good. Go ahead. Yeah, just in general, I think I agree with you that power is actually the entire point of life, right? Like we are channeling energy across time to do things, and the, the systems that channel more power in a physics sense are the ones that proliferate. So I agree. It's it's. Ah. So like and the, and the ethics, yep. the ethics yeah, sure. that will proliferate will piggyback on the systems that actually channel energy the best. Right. It, it basically, there's a natural selection effect where 
any ethics that are inconsistent with sufficient reproduction and or self-protection will eventually be selected against. And, exactly. You know, yes. Right? Start one yeah. in. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Here's the big fat question. You said, and this is a long one, so it's kind of three part, but I, I'm sure you can sure. handle it. Uh, money. You said the money doesn't drive you. And to some extent, I'm, I'm just trying to look into myself. Like, I sort of agree that the more affluent I've become, the less money has driven me. But now I've found with Bitcoin that I am actually trying to accumulate as much Bitcoin as possible. Like I have a very deep conviction that Bitcoin is going to be sure. you know, very successful, uh, going to continue to grow. And I want to have a very large position in that network. The why for me is to create, hopefully create a positive change in the world as I see it. You know, that, That's a whole amorphous thing. So what I'd like to point to you is, if money's not driving you, what is? And this is the second part of the question is, given all of our long <laughs> geopolitical, I think we've talked for like 10 hours up to this point. So it's, it's a lot. Sure. Yeah. If you had to put all this, crystallize all this into a summation, where is the world going? You sort of alluded to it, the centralized uh, East, decentralized West, but maybe you could put a little color to that. And then what is your intended involvement in that trajectory of the world? What do you ultimately see your legacy becoming in all of this? I know this is hard work. I know you produce content like a madman. I mean, you, something is moving you. Something is animating you. And so what is that and how do you see it uh, playing into the world and where it's going? It's a great question. So, um, you know, I have, I have like a six word summary on my Twitter bio, which is um, infinite frontier, immutable money, eternal life, right? And so that's uh, that space, that's, uh, that's Bitcoin, that is life extension and longevity, right? Mm. And that, that I think that that's close, by the way, actually to, you know, Hal Finney's ideology, who is an extropian, right? Mm -hmm. And Hal Finney may have been the closest candidate we have to Satoshi. Certainly, he was the first person who replied to Satoshi. And Hal Finney was into space. He was certainly into Bitcoin. And he's, you know, chronically frozen. He was into life extension and, and so on, right? So that extropian ideology, I consider actually the true, um, you know, underpinnings of Bitcoin, as opposed to, in some ways, like where the maximalist ideology is going into something that's, um, that are considered ultra-conservative, right? Mm -hmm. Ultra-conservative meaning do not change anything. You know, Bitcoin is the last change. And then basically, um, you know, you're almost anti-tech, you know, like, for example, not just uh, I, I can argue on a mandate or a non-mandate for a vaccine, but on the, the whether vaccines work at all or where the science works, forget where they have, you know, some side effects or not, it's an empirical question, but like the fundamental science of things, they're sort of an anti-intellectual strain. I don't know if you know, know what I mean on this, right? So- the you know fundamentally, I would consider myself pro science, pro technology, pro math, not in the sense of the sort of stupid establishment corruption of this, where they will use science to justify some study that came out last week, but in the true sense of science, which is Maxwell's equations and Newton's laws and mm -hmm. quantum mechanics and, and and that type of stuff, right? And so. Values, I think um, we need to reopen the frontier. We need to get to space. Uh, I think we need to, um, I, I want to advance, and uh, you know, this is something I've talked about before, but um, transhumanism, 
which is truly getting to human 2.0. Okay, so brain machine interface, limber generation. Um, have you seen the myostat and null stuff that I posted on? I have not. With this, okay. All right. Well, so you are naturally uh, you don't need this, okay? <laughs> but uh, what this is is you know Captain America, like the scene yeah. from the movie, right, where the skinny yeah. Steve Rogers is turned into this super jacked dude, right? Um, so you see above, that's a wild type and a myostat and null mouse, okay? Wow. And just take a look at the chest on that thing on the left and the right. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. Okay. Yeah. That's incredible, like right? Captain America's before and after, but on a mouse. <laughs> but on a mouse. That's right. Now, that article actually came out years ago. All right. Um, you know, that, that article is from 2007, quadrupling muscle mass in mice by targeting TGF beta signaling pathways. Okay. Like this stuff is real. And it, uh, you know, have, is it like perfectly formulated? Does it have zero side effects? And is it suitable for lacing in your daily, you know, water like the fluoride or, you know, putting in your Starbucks like the caffeine? Not yet, but could it be? Absolutely. You know, one of my kind of one-liners is, you know, Lance Armstrong, you know, certainly he, you know, he, he's admitted to cheating and, and, and so on and so forth. But from one vantage point, his chemists should have won the Nobel Prize. Okay. <laughs> because they brought this guy back from cancer yeah. to winning like multiple Tour de France's, right? right. <laughs> Simply as a feat of like human biomedicine, like, you know, the, the, the engineering on that is freaking unbelievable. Yeah. And a bunch of cancer patients would want that cocktail. Yeah. Of right? course. Yeah. Like that's the kind of stuff. Go ahead. No, I was just agreeing. Right. So that's the kind of stuff I'm interested in, which is restoring sight, you know, like these, these bionic implants for eyes, some of the stuff is like really amazing. You can restore sight. You can cure deafness. We can extend life. We can do brain machine interface. We can massively boost muscle mass. We can do all of these things, right? These amazing interventions that are frankly comparable to indoor plumbing or contact lenses or, you know, braces uh, or, you know, like, like cleft palate, you know, like lip fixes and stuff like yeah. all of these things that are just fundamental improvements in just human flourishing in life. We have them on the shelf. We haven't rolled them out, right? Hmm. That's the kind of stuff I think about for like improving humanity itself, right? And um, ultimately, my ultimate, ultimate metric, you know, is how do we know we've advanced in the year 3000 from the year 2000? And that is, are we more sophisticated in mathematics than we were? Hmm. And the reason I say that is um, I thought a lot about what that metric is for a civilization, Okay. And, you know, how do you measure, you know, us versus, you know, the Romans versus Neanderthals or, you know, like some distant ancestor of Homo sapiens, you know, fundamentally what makes us human is technological advancement. And fundamentally the core of technological advancement is mathematics. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, even things in math that you didn't think were going to get applied, like number theory, famously G.H. Hardy didn't think that number theory was ever going to get applied. That's the base of cryptography, right? There's lots of areas of math that people didn't think were going to get applied. But mathematics itself is like, in a sense, a technology. It's like, it's like something that we, yeah. we know Psycho about. Psychotechnology. And uh, yeah, it's just the most fundamental one in a sense, yeah. right? Um, and so if whatever, um, you know, computerized, 
genetically engineered, uh, you know, 2.0 life form we are in the year 3000 or 30,000, um, if we are more advanced in mathematics, then, uh, then we've made progress. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the thing is that that's, uh, that offers a lot of flexibility, right? When I say whatever life form we are, what we may be in the year 30,000 is to us as we are to, you know, uh, the Neanderthals or, you know, like, like our ancestor, like 70,000 years ago. Right. Um, and, uh, and that's fine. Right. The, uh, that's actually what I think technological progress is like having that era of history. Now, the opposite of that, by the way, some people would be like, Oh my God, that's so weird. You're such a weirdo. That's horrible. We need to go back to nature. This actually, I think is, um, the real, uh, you know, kind of the rotating political axis. It's not left, right. It's, it's up, down. Okay. Uh-uh. Are we going up to the stars? Are we transhumanism? Are, are we, are transhumanists? Are we achieving 2.0? Are we, you know, becoming super intelligent and, you know, living forever and all this awesome sci-fi stuff? Or do people think technological civilization was a mistake? Are they full Unabomber? Are they anarcho-primitivists mm-hmm. who want to blow everything up and return back to nature to some idealized time where they could gamble in the fields and mm-hmm. you know be naked with a loincloth, Adam and Eve <laughs> type stuff, right? And the thing is, I actually think that as quote unrealistic as the transhumanist vision might seem, I can point to paper after paper after paper after every single thing I've talked about from Limerge, you know, uh, you know, go and look at bioelectricity. I just gave you a site on the myostat and all stuff. I have countless papers and citations on this. Unrealistic is not what transhumanism is about. It is about technically feasible. You know, um, you know, we can put, we can make mice glow in the dark with GFP protein, you know, transplanted from jellyfish into mice. That's been true for 20 years. Genex is way more modular than people think. Biomedicine is much more tractable than people think with sufficient effort, which we haven't put in, with sufficient risk tolerance, which we haven't had, um, which hopefully cryptocurrency gives us mm. um, because it allows us to unbundle from the state and then rebundle into new states that might be more risk tolerant. Um, so, so the problem with transhumanism isn't that it's unrealistic. Uh, in my view, I actually think that the anarcho-primitivist view is more unrealistic mm. because it kind of presumes that that person will be the only one walking around in this in these Elysian <laughs> yeah. fields. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, right? From a purely like economic standpoint, it's disastrous. It's disastrous. This is the degrowth ideology, which is yeah. like the, you know, it's a chaotic version of communism, right? Yeah. Yeah. If communism was like use the state to seize all the money, degrowth. Yeah. Which is like the Naomi Klein D E G R O W T H. Uh, degrowth is basically like back to nature, destroy industrialized civilization, Unabomber style. Now, as I've said, you know, the Unabomber at least had skin in the game. He actually really did live like a mountain man in the middle of nowhere, like a lunatic, you know, but he actually did it. Okay. The, the carrying capacity of the world is not sufficient for that, for everybody to go and, and live like that. And frankly, most people don't want to live like that. The problem is anarcho-primitivists don't simply want to live like that themselves, you know, more power to them. There's mm-hmm. mountains out there, go knock your stuff out. You can literally abandon civilization right now by just driving out there and running out into the woods, go knock yourself out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the anarcho-primitivist doesn't want to just do that. They want to drag down civilization for everybody else. You ever seen the movie Contact? Yeah, it's a great movie. Yeah. You know, the crazy guy who goes and blows up the thing that they're going to communicate with aliens because he's like this wide-eyed fundamentalist. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, yes. I right. remember that. Yeah. But fortunately I'm giving away the ending, but it's, you know, it's a spoiler 24 <laughs> spoiler. years later. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but they have the second ship, right. 
Yeah. That's the decentralization backup plan, dog, right? Like, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that actually encapsulates a lot of it. We kind of brings the whole, the whole thing together, right? Yeah, no. They might no. blow Right, they might blow up the first ship. These fundamentalist lunatics might blow up the first ship, you know. But uh, you know, the anti-growth people, whatever. But we've got the second ship, so we're gonna we're gonna actually make. So the second ship. I mean, these are the networked states you've been writing about. These are the network stakes. These are the backup coins. This yeah. is basically the backup plan because the first plan might not work. But if you've got determination. You know that the number one plan may not always work, but if you, you know, there's a right. saying, right? This maybe this this might be actually abolishism. I'm not sure if actually I heard it, but um, luck is having the coin come up heads, but hard work is flipping it enough times. Huh. Interesting. Right? So you flip it a hundred times, you'll hopefully eventually get heads. So the Balaji philosophy is always have a contingency plan. That's certainly a big part of it. Yes. <laughs> nice. Well, man, this has been super enlightening discussion. Um, I can't thank you enough. You know, you've, you've contributed a lot to the world. Um, I consider you, you know, one of the leaders and frontiersmen in this ideological race that we're all participating in, in this digital age. So um, really thank you for everything that you do. And thank you, Rob. I'd mean, be glad to talk to you anytime. Awesome. I've learned a lot from you too. And this is, uh, it's been fun. I'm sure my audience knows you very well, but just in case they don't, maybe you could let them know where they can find you. Sure. I'm at uh, twitter.com for slash B-A-L-A-G-I-S. That's my Twitter. And uh, newsletter is at 1729.com. If you want to read about um, the new book that I've been writing called The Network State, um, which is basically about how we go from cryptocurrencies to crypto cities and crypto countries. Awesome. Balaji, thank you so much.